Hallelujah, Heavenly Father. We rejoice this morning in the victory parade of Jesus Christ, our conquering Lord, who defeated our worst and final enemy, death itself, who laid Satan's plans to waste at the cross, who declared victory over every attempt by Satan and his minions to destroy the plan of God, to redeem for himself a people who will sing forth his praise to his glorious name forever and without end. We are pleased this morning to join the ranks of those who shout, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Of those who celebrate as the redeemed, who praise the Lord on account of His purifying blood, on account of His salvation work on the cross. We praise You, Heavenly Father, because You have planned this and executed this plan perfectly in the fullness of time. We submit to You, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, And we declare that you are our sufficient lamb. And your blood covers the multitude of our sins. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, whereby you have made this known to our hearts, awakening our souls from the deadness and the depth of our depravity and given us faith and given us new life in Jesus Christ such that we are new creations. The old has gone And the new has come. And now this morning as we open up the pages, Lord, wherein is recorded the testimony of the living word of God. I pray that these words would jump off the page onto the tablets of our heart. I pray that you would unify your people behind the proclamation of the gospel. That as we partake in communion as your redeemed Lord and called out ones, your church this morning that we would remember and proclaim the work of Jesus Christ our Lord, defeating death on Calvary until your soon return. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. What a joy and privilege it is to join together for the worship of our Lord and the proclamation of His Word today. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, the end of the chapter and the beginning of chapter 6 will be our primary text this morning. As you're turning there, this morning's message, in a moment I'll ask you to stand for the reading of the Word. This morning's message is entitled, Spiritual Shock Therapy. There comes a time in the course of the church where we need warnings Because we may be in danger as a people confessing Jesus Christ of growing dull of hearing, according to Hebrews 5.11. And to a church in dire straits such as this, this epistle was penned to draw to our attention, even as the church that was the original recipient of these words received the admonition from its author to come awake and to rise up from the grave. Do not let the stupor of dullness of hearing and hardness of heart blind you from the only source and ground of your salvation and your vitality in Christ Jesus your Lord. So let's stand together and read these life-giving words as we find them in Hebrews 5, 8 through about 6, 3. Hebrews 5, 8 through 6, 3. Listen as I read. Although he was a son, speaking of Christ, He learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Six, chapter 6, verse 1, Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works 
and of faith toward God and of instructions about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. This is the word of God. You may be seated. The book of Hebrews unfolds with a beautiful, spectacular, and intricate testimony of the glories of salvation. It is not an easy book, to theologic, theologically speaking, to digest. And in part, this is why the author makes an appeal to the spiritual appetite of the hearers. He knows that if their appetite, spiritually speaking, has been stunted by junk food and a surface-level understanding and an aversion to the deeper things of the Spirit, that they will not be able to process the truth that He delivers. But He also knows that repentance is a sufficient means and God's grace is sufficient for us and that it is never too late so long as we are alive and the Spirit is alive in us to call to our to call our attention back to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we might shun the distractions and pay attention to the truth. Later in the book of Hebrews, we read the testimony of saints who have gone before, who overcame circumstances, in some cases more than you and I will ever have to endure, at least Lord willing, and in some cases more than the recipients of the book of Hebrews had had to endure up to this point. These were those who are mentioned in Hebrews 11.32, among them Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel. Verse 33 says these conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire. And this testimony as we read it sounds like overcoming, amazing, spectacular, triumphal testimony of faith, and it is indeed. But in the same list of things that the Spirit gives us power to overcome or power to reflect in our faith, we read the following, verse 36. Others, it says, suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Yet this list that I just read to you does not represent, according to the book of Hebrews, the most formidable of circumstances and the most ferocious of enemies against the confessing believer. Indeed, it is in light of the greater context, our own hearts, that sometimes are the biggest enemy preventing us from growth and roots and vitality in the kingdom of God. You see, the writer of Hebrews is not worried that the church might encounter uh, destitution uh, uh, or circumstances that leave them destitute or afflicted. He's not even so concerned. He doesn't even offer so much as a prayer that they would be relieved of stoning or being sawn in two or of the mocking and the flogging, the chains and the imprisonment of those who are around them. The hostile circumstances and the magistrates who hate Christ would like to stamp out this fledgling work of the Spirit in their society. No, he does, he's not so concerned about these enemies. Indeed, he knows that God uses these very things to proliferate his truth. What is he concerned about, however? Well, he is concerned that his hearers, that his readers have grown dull of hearing. Usually, our biggest enemy is on the inside, not the outside. We are usually motivated to offer prayers and supplications to God most fervently on account of the bad guys out there. However, the author of Hebrews would have us pray most fervently against the bad guy in here. The bad guy in here. Our own sinful tendency to grow lacks, lackadaisical, apathetic, and just accept Uh, Each day as it comes, not as a gracious gift undeserving of us wicked sinners saved by grace alone. No, but something else, something that we experience on a day-to-day course as a matter of, well, we uh, encounter this life as 
no longer sinners saved by grace, but deserving of a little something better or bypassing the gospel as old news or not uh, fellowshipping regularly in the assembly of the beloved, not taking heed to our leaders, spiritually speaking, those who are given charge to keep watch over our souls. No, it's the mundane things of life. It is the everyday plodding through the course of our affairs, navigating our next decision by our basic, by our uh, carnal schedules. These are the things that the author of Hebrews diligently wars against, lest they suck the life out of the early church. The Christian life is beleaguered by many, in many practical ways in our temporal plight. We do suffer from the outside. There is shame that attends our way that is directed towards us by the enemies of our souls. We do live in a world of unbelief. And the nature of the kingdom of God remains in this portion of history primarily hidden to the natural eye. And we do suffer under these circumstances uh, what might look like some setbacks to the natural mind. The internal reality of our true worship is based on spirit and in truth, and and that uh, is in constant conflict with our pagan desire for idolatry. A lot of times we place more weight on the external than the internal. And chief of all of these setbacks that we often face on a daily basis is what I've already mentioned, the human heart that is prone to wander. And to this situation, the author of Hebrews comes with his letter. He addresses a church that has been handicapped and encumbered by these tendencies. But, grace be to God, and praise be to God, in His grace, He prescribes a healing elixir. There is extensive and consistent, what is that healing elixir? Well, it is extensive and consistent application of spiritual truth, the truths of the gospel. And this should be accompanied, as we see in the context of the book, with an impassioned pursuit of doctrinal depth. So both an understanding of the beauty of our salvation and an extensive and a consistent application of those truths to our daily lives across the board, these will shore us up in our faith. The author recognizes that the natural tendency of the church in trial is to concede to worldly impulses and influences, rather than to proceed in obedience, faith, and understanding. And just to help us along in understanding these two uh, situations, on the one hand where we ought to be, and the other hand where we often find ourselves, I'd like to give you an illustration. Consider, if you have a copy of notes before you, I've outlined this in a little detail in the description paragraph on your notes. But consider for a moment, by way of illustration, two samples of water at a treatment facility. You know, at a central urban location, oftentimes water is taken, wastewater is taken, and it's held in big holding ponds or reservoirs. And there's a multiple stage process to reconstitute that water so that it's good for use, keeping th- or washing things and potable, able to drink, and so on. Consider two different samples of water in a treatment facility, first of all, from the holding pond. In the holding pond, we recognize that this body of water accepts all streams. All kinds of water flow in to this one uh, reservoir. In this uh, sample of water, it's available in the largest of quantities. Whereas most of the water in a water treatment facility would be in the holding pond. And by the nature of its uh, storage uh, capacity there or storage facility there, it's easily accessible. And also we recognize that the longer it sits, the more stagnant, corrupt, and polluted it becomes, though it may look inviting on the surface. Now this is a picture I would submit to you of how we, when we approach the Christian life, might be prone to grow stagnant, corrupted, and polluted in our own life. Too many of us in the Christian life are like a holding pond. We're like water that, or a body of water that accepts all streams. And uh, a lot, too often Christianity is sold to us in this least common denominator or sort of mere Christianity or broadest sense. 
And we miss what the Scriptures teach, that the way is narrow indeed, and few that be that find it of legitimate, authentic faith. Instead, today it's more popular to conceive of the Christian life as a big reservoir that accepts all streams. It's available in large quantities. It's easily accessible. And so we have a church today, much like the church addressed in Hebrews, that sits stagnant, corrupted, and polluted, even though it may look inviting on a surface level. Now consider a second sample of water. This is at the end of the assembly line, if you will, at the end of the uh, process whereby water is purified in this same plant. And in this case, we take a sample of bottled water uh, ready for shipment. Now in this case, the water is in smaller quantities. It's gone through a pressurized system. It's been forced through fine, narrow, and discriminating filters. It's a multiple stage process. Heat and intensity and intensity are necessary factors for purification. This whole process is costly and time-consuming. It must be carefully regulated to be safe and to be certified as such. It requires engineering and supervision. And this whole enterprise needs to be watched over with diligence. There needs to be rigorous testing against high-quality standard. But in the end... This process produces valuable, healthy, clear results. And the aim, the goal, is purity. In this picture I've just given you, which sample of water best describes the Christian life? Is it the first one, the tepid pool? Or is it the second one, the detailed, planned, costly, yet valuable process whereby water is purified. Well, of course, the second one is a better description of what it looks like in the church of Jesus Christ to submit yourself to the terms of the Christian life. The author of the book of Hebrews is calling the church, no matter how tight the situation, how much pressure is applied, how much heat is turned up, how narrow the filters are to run their thinking, their life, their decisions, and themselves through the necessary sanctifying process so that they might show the fruits of repentance and in the end yield a valuable commodity, if you will, for the kingdom of God. Purity, Christ-likeness is the goal. It does not feel good in process, but in the end, as Hebrews, the book goes on to describe It yields, that is the chastening of the Lord, this purifying process yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness for those who are trained by it. And you'll find more detail of that in Hebrews chapter 12. So the second is a better description of Christianity. It is not the easy idea of a big holding pond, but instead it's the high pressure and diligently regulated situation of growth in the kingdom of God. Here's a test question for you. I wonder if you could answer it this morning. I won't put you on the spot directly, but ask yourself this question and honestly ask yourself if you could answer it sufficiently according to Scripture. What if you were given an essay question on a test this morning? And the question was this. Can you explain the high priesthood of Jesus according to the order of Melchizedek? Can you explain the high priesthood of Jesus according to the order of Melchizedek? Let me me return briefly to our text. It says in 5.8, although he, speaking of Christ, let me back up to verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, this is Psalm 110.9, by the way, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, verse 7, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, for he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him, 
being designated by God high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So we see here that the author is interested in conveying this truth, that the high priesthood of Christ is is according to the pattern, the prior order of an interesting Old Testament figure, namely Melchizedek. He says in verse 11, he laments, listen, but this, about this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. How good, again, our test question this morning, how good, again, is our hearing? Could we explain the high priesthood of Jesus when asked on the spot according to the order of Melchizedek? If not, we need to, like the audience of the book of Hebrews, take heed these admonitions to set our ears to hearing the word of God, to pray that our appetite for digesting difficult yet necessary spiritual food and meat, as it were, as he describes it in analogy here, that our ability to process that solid food would increase. Then we could answer that question. And those are, and the author would not have to lament us as he does the church that he is writing to because in our dullness of hearing and in our uh, failure to realize the value of the Holy Scriptures, we have not taken seriously the truths therein contained. This morning, to help us digest a little bit more or to set the uh, table uh, in our own souls for digesting, for assimilating what the author brings to bear, let me give you a heading in just three points. This morning, this, are, this exhortational aside, that means verses 11, an aside, an interjection uh, to correct something. So in other words, the author says in verse 10 that he would like to explain something of the high priesthood of Jesus according to the order of Melchizedek, but then he interjects by saying, about this we have much to say, but it is hard to explain. There's an aside here. It's a warning. It's an exhortation. And he lays out in this warning several interrelated ideas. First of all, he wants his readers to understand, and indeed the Spirit wants us today, I would suggest to you to understand the same. He wants to under, would have us to realize that there is a relationship of obedience and understanding. There's a relationship between obedience and understanding. The second set of interrelated ideas is that there is a relationship uh, of elementary doctrines. The elementary uh, doctrines are detailed for us in six representative examples at the beginning of chapter 6. And they correlate with one another. There's a pattern there. And then thirdly, the relationship of milk and solid food. So firstly, this morning, the exhortation, the exhortational aside of Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 uh, through 14, and going on into 6, just briefly there, Uh, details a relationship for us between obedience and understanding. Understanding, uh, generally speaking, and specifically, uh, maturity. Listen again to verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have or you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Let me rewind uh, to verse 9 as well because there's an idea contained there about obedience, most directly it says, He became, in the second half of the verse, the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. So there is a relationship between obedience and understanding. How does Christ become, in our understanding, the source of eternal salvation? And how do we process the amazing truths of the priestly order of Melchizedek? Well, we will not if we are not among those who put into practice the things that God commands. He becomes the source of eternal salvation to all 
who obey Him. There is a relationship between the obedient and those who obtain, who understand, who walk in, and who realize the salvation, the eternal uh, salvation of Jesus Christ. This point is underscored in context. Verse 13, everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. So conversely, there is a call for us to be what? Skilled in the word of righteousness. Again, obedience is referenced there. Putting into practice that which God commands. Also, there is a call for us to have a constant practice uh, in verse 14. Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So we see here that there is a relationship between the two. That is, our understanding of the glories of the gospel, and even our ability to answer that test question and to articulate it to others, and our own obedience to what it commands. Now there is a danger He also lays out in not doing these kinds of things. And what is that danger? Well, that danger is a certain dullness and hardness, a stagnancy that comes upon us if we don't actively participate in our calling as believers. Verse 11, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So I submit to you in the absence of, of actively walking out your Christian life, and the absence of skillfully interacting in challenging situations with the word of righteousness, in the absence of a maturity growth curve which advances based upon your powers of discernment trained through constant practice to distinguish good and evil, you grow stupid, dull of hearing, lethargic, and punch drunk, if you will. These images of somebody who is just sort of in a daze. Remember those cartoons where somebody is hit, inside of the, hit to the side of the jaw, you know, and like, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the, the mouse and the cat cartoon. What am I thinking? <laughs> think Tom and Jerry, is that the name of it? And uh, those, those cartoons where somebody is hit upside the head, and then there's those swirling stars and exclamation points that bounce off their skull. What does that indicate to us? Well, that person is unconscious. He can't reason well. He doesn't have a good ability to, uh, to take in his surroundings. For a moment, he's incapacitated, and he might as well be in a coma. This is the kind of situation that lethargy, that apathy, that laziness in the Christian life will incur if we are not careful. And it takes something like shock therapy spiritually speaking, to bring us to our senses. The author of this book is reaching out proverbially and grabbing the shoulders of the church and shaking her, saying, snap out of it. You are growing dull of hearing. You are daydreaming. You are in a daze. Put your, I, or put your salvation to work. Interact on a daily basis according to the truth that has been delivered to you. Sharpen the sword of the Spirit in your hand. Wield it against the enemies. Stand strong. Gird your loins. Fight against the enemy and be concerned with Christian maturity. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus talks about in the gospel and in his own teaching of the kingdom the consequences of avoiding the truth. Listen, Matthew 13, 10 should be familiar territory to us. Let me remind you. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom. And let me pause there. To whom has it been given to know the secrets of the kingdom? Well, it was the disciples, those who had an active, interactive relationship with Jesus Christ who are listening, asking him questions, and putting into practice, at least on some rudimentary level, the things that he was sharing. But those who reserve the right to remain autonomous and do things their own way, who didn't engage in the gospel directly, namely those on the outside, like the hard-hearted Pharisees and the like, they 
heard Christ speak in riddles and did not understand. It says in verse 12, For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. Listen to this language, how similar it is to Hebrews 5. And you, uh, For this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Notice he closes with the message of hope to those who are not found in this category, verse 16. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So you see that this is axiomatic in Scripture. This is a principle that Jesus himself articulated. That those who do not steward well the information given will grow dull of hearing. And as they do, it is actually God's judgment against them. There is a term in theology called judicial hardening. That is, hardening, that is God's judgment. Who did God judge the most harshly? Well, oftentimes it was His own people who of whom, as the Scriptures say, I believe in Luke 12, perhaps 48, round there, to whom much is given, much is required. The Jews had advantages in every way, Romans says. After all, to them was given the oracles of God. And so this, God's covenant people, had a higher standard of faithfulness because they had been the beneficiaries of clearer truth. And this is the same, brothers and sisters, for us. I've said this before, I will say it again. If I am handling the Word of God rightly before you today, your culpability for the message you hear this morning has been raised proportionally. You are more responsible for the truth, having heard the Word of God proclaimed, than before you heard it, uttered, spoken, or read it in God's holy Word. This ought to move us to fear. If we find ourselves growing weary and well-doing, we ought to submit ourselves to the means of grace because we need spiritual shock therapy. To whom much is given, much is required of stewardship. We will go into parables in the near future in our Matthew series that expound on this truth. That God is not pleased when those who have been given the precious commodity of His Son's blood to take it lightly, to spurn it as common, to take it for granted. May we not do so. The American church today is in a fearful context, I would say, generally speaking, because we have in our culture an embarrassment of riches. You are a few clicks on Google away from a double PhD seminary course of solid truth available for free on the internet. Immediate access to the word itself and to the word expounded by history of well vetted theological understanding where uh, those who come along this, alongside the Scripture by the way of apostolic uh, teaching in the Word itself, by the way of further help through evangelists and ministers, according to Ephesians 4, it's available to us at great quantities. Yet do we steward that precious gift as we ought? Are we, do we succumb to the carnal laws of supply and demand And where truth is in great supply, the spiritual demand drops. If that is the case in your heart, repent. And as we see that is the case in the landscape of our culture, dare to be different. Dare to cry out that you would not be dull of hearing. And dare to dig deeply into and to steward well 
the gift that God has given us in His great revelation. Because we, of all prior generations, perhaps, have the more riches than any other. There's more like an apprentice model. There's something like an apprentice model in the biblical call to maturity. You know, you might lament the fact, as I sometimes do, that you don't have a seminary uh, training or haven't gone to extended, you know, very sophisticated intellectual education. But God's grace is such that His model for growth and maturity is more like an apprentice than it is some kind of sophisticated, uh, a sophisticated intellectual enterprise. And this is helpful for us. That is to say that a little bit of knowledge with a whole lot of obedience will go a long way, a lot farther than a lot of knowledge with a little bit of obedience. It says in James chapter 1, along these same, same lines, uh, this truth is, is reiterated, and it says in James 1.22, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. That is to say, if our only quest is for knowledge, and if our only interest is in hearing, we will be on a path to self-deception. To the degree that we hear, we are called to do. It says, verse 23, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a uh, doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, perseveres. Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Remember the opening scripture during call to worship, Psalm 19. What does David exalt? He exalts the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimonies of the sure are of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. He goes on to describe their value. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. They're sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. Later he says, Who can understand his errors? Who can discern his great wickedness? Well, there is a contextual answer to that question. Who can understand his wickedness? Who can see himself rightly? Who can look into the law of God as a looking glass, going away and not forget the image that he sees? It is the one who values and does the word and law of God. It is the one who treasures the law of God as his righteous precepts and holy standards and vision for sanctification the one who treasures, the one who watches his footsteps closely to see by the lamp that is the word of God, whether he is on the narrow path to life. This is the relationship between obedience and understanding that the Bible consistently delineates or lays out for us. One final thing under the relationship between obedience and understanding. What is the biblical standard of education? How do you know if you successfully learn something? Well, maturity in this context means one who has mastered something. And right here, the author laments that those who are receiving his teaching have not yet become teachers. Verse 12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. So study to teach. Biblically, as we learn and as we interact with information, it would, should be with a goal to explain it to others. Second Timothy 2.2, I believe, that's where Paul admonishes Timothy to take these instructions and to teach them to faithful men who will in turn teach others. You, saint, in this room, have a teaching call, something like a teaching ministry. You may not ever take this pulpit here, but that is a secondary teaching call I would submit to you. The universal and primary teaching call of all believers is to testify to the reason of the hope within you. It may be to your family, to your spouse, to your children. It may be through family worship or the discipleship of a brand new believer that God has given you to tell them this is the way. Walk ye in it. What does it look like to follow Christ? To hear and do His word. Study to teach. 
Look for opportunities to obey them, to put into practice and to explain the things that you studied that week, even if it's just a phone call to a close friend. Some of you singles in this room, I would encourage you to take an opportunity to explain to someone else what you've learned in your studies. Those of you that are married, I would encourage you to explain to your spouse what you have been studying this week. Those of you with children, diligently lay out the scriptures and explain, this is what this means. Ask your children questions and answer them from the word. Those of you who have interacted with family members that do not know Christ, or those of you that interact on a daily basis with the unbeliever, try to be ready for that opportunity when you might explain an answer to one of life's questions on a gospel foundation. And in this way, we can be among those who are commended, not corrected, in Hebrews chapter 5. Secondly, this morning, let us consider the relationship of elementary doctrines. You might ask yourself, what is solid food and what is milk? These are the terms, the analogy, the illustration that the author uses. It says in verse 12, you need milk, not solid food. He says milk in that same context in verse 12 is uh, the basic principles of the oracles of God. If you go to the Greek there on that term basic principles, you'll see that that refers to the constituent elements, the very building blocks of something. So he lays out a few building blocks for us in chapter 6. Follow with me verses 1 and 2. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of, and so it follows with some of these elementary doctrines or building blocks. Here they are. Repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Verse 2, and of instructions about washings and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. So there's six there. Let me read them again. These again are foundational truths. These again are milk in the milk category. Repentance from dead works, faith towards God, instruction about washings, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Let me suggest to you that these are not comprehensive, but they are samples or examples of basics of the Christian walk. And perhaps we can see them in three categories. Notice the first two deal with our, the individual heart and our initial our response to the gospel. When we are born again, two things happen. We repent of our dead works and we place faith in God. Repentance from dead works and faith towards God. That's gospel 101. The message of John the Baptist, remember, the theme of his entire baptism was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Later, the baptism of uh, the disciples after the Great Commission, Matthew 28, would incorporate the baptism of John, if you will, into the baptism of Christ. It's repentance and faith. Be baptized into Jesus Christ. Share in the experience of washing away of sins and the regeneration and faith in God. Repentance, a turning from the old and a placing faith in the new in Jesus Christ is the very moment or at the very root, at the very initial point of our salvation. So the first category of elementary doctrine deals with the individual and what it means to be a new believer, to be regenerate, to be born again, to be, in fact, a Christian. Secondly, there's a pair as well, and these deal with, let me suggest, corporate participation or life within the church. Secondly, it says, and of instruction about washings, in the Greek it's baptismos. So baptism is another way of saying it, or baptisms in the plural, which is curious. And then laying on of hands. So again, let me suggest to you that these are representative of something. When the plural is used describing baptisms, we are not to infer, based on the greater context of Scripture, that there is more than one Christian baptism. However, there is more than one thing represented in Christian baptism, as I've already told you. And Christian baptism is such that it takes place within the context of the body of Christ. It is something like an external rite of passage that testifies to something internally uh, real that has taken place in our heart. 
And so in this way, this outward sign or this participation in and the experience of a believer takes place in the corporate assembly. Perhaps another example of this would be the ordinance of communion. We will partake in the ordinance of communion this morning. This is something that we do corporately. In this uh, example, there is the broken bread and there is the cup. And these represent something and our participation in them represents something as well. So an elementary doctrine, a fundamental of the faith is our individual changed heart and secondly, our corporate participation in the kingdom of God or in His church, the ecclesia, the called out assembly, the set apart ones. There is, in fact, a more in, or another representative phrase, the laying on of hands. Laying on of hands presupposes at least two parties, the one uh, on whom the hands are laid and the one who lays his hands. And this again suggests that there is a corporate setting. The laying on of hands throughout the book of Acts and in the rest of the New Testament represents the mutual growth and benefit that we draw from each other in the church. The greater context of Hebrews describes this as the assembly of ourselves together. Remember, I think it's in 3.13, do not forsake the assembly of, of yourselves together. Or I guess it's in, uh, be ex- exhort one another as long as it is called today that none of you may become hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Later on in the book, especially in his closing comments, he says in 13.1, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. He also mentions in verse 7, to remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Again, all of these presuppose a corporate context. Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So the corporate life is essential and basic. It is a category of first principles in the Christian life. And thirdly, on the relationship, underneath the relationship of elementary doctrines, we have our final pairing, five and six, of what is milk or the basic building blocks of Christianity. And let me submit to you that these could be worldview presuppositions. Back to our context, or our text in uh, Hebrews 6. After uh, it's talking about the, the wa- various washings and the laying on of hands, the author says, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Earlier, a chapter before or so, he has talked about a confession. Um, This is in chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then hold confidence Draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Confession refers to something that is a joint statement of unity. It is an idea or a belief or a foundational reality that is shared among the brethren. And certainly a confession that is absolutely essential for the church is the resurrection of the dead, as an example, and eternal judgment. We will live forever and there is a reckoning. This is the bedrock of Christian confessional truth that we will one day rise from the dead and everyone will have to answer and give an account for what he has done in the flesh as the word says. And the only way to pass through the eternal judgment unscathed is to pass through under the blood, the wrath-satisfying, sin-cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. There is a resurrection, and there is a judgment, and there is a satisfactory payment. So these are the elementary doctrines of the faith. These are the basic building blocks. There's the initial, a point of salvation where you yourself repent and believe. There is then the corporate participation with the people of God. And there is the confession of truth in living your life in light of what the Bible defines as reality 
because the Bible alone is authoritative and the Bible alone is revelatory as to truth. That which is beyond our experience here initially and actually explains what we encounter on a day-to-day basis. These are the elementary doctrines. Finally, this morning, major point, let us note the relationship of what I just explained to you of milk to solid food. One might ask, are we to forget these things or leave them behind in progress in the Christian faith? It is helpful to remember the concepts here that no, even though we go on to more uh, sophisticated uh, meals, if you will, we, it, they are still attended by milk, to use that phrase. Or the other example is, is that there is a foundation that is laid, yet the foundation remains and it is built upon. Again, in verse 12, it says, You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. Later, it goes on to introduce this second analogy in chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith toward God. So in these examples here, we see that the elementary principles, those things that we've just delineated, are the basic building blocks of our faith. They are the ABCs, if you will. They are the foundation stones upon which we build. But the call is to build on them. Here's what you do, saint. You recognize that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. You repent and place your faith in Him. You join and become connected to and covenantally loyal to a local church. And then you understand and implement and act as if your worldview is in accord with what God says reality is. And then you begin to see your life change according to those foundational principles. Let me give you one example. Two weeks ago, I took my family down to protest at Planned Parenthood. This is the front lines of the battle for life itself and morals in our culture. Under the civil sanction of law, the government has said that women have the choice to uh, kill the baby that is, born, that is being developed inside of them. And by codifying injustice by statute, according to Psalm 94, the rulers of this nation have said that it is permissible, according to our authority, to go ahead and dismember and sell the various parts of these unborn children for medical research and the like. You've probably heard of these videos that are revealing the policies and practices of this horrific thing that is happening in our culture today. What does building on the foundation of the Word of God look like related to this one challenge? Well, perhaps going to the front lines and bringing the truth of the gospel where it is being most blatantly opposed. So we go and we command in the name of Jesus Christ that every murderer repent of their sins. And we declare that the only sufficient payment for a sin as egregious as murder and taking the life of the innocence uh, of the innocent, those that have not even committed a civil crime in this life, the only sufficient payment for a sin of that heinous nature, along with all other sins, is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He was killed so that we may be forgiven of murder. We go out and we preach the gospel. That's one example. Now, if we avoid, and I'm not saying you yourself are necessarily called to that specific application, but you are certainly called to many applications, and you can seek the Lord in His face what that might look like for you. But if you shrink from every battle, you never stand on your foundation, you never go forward as a militant church, you never assert the Lordship of Christ, You never testify to His finished work that saved you from your dead works and your repentance and faith towards Him, then what will the world see? Nothing. And what will be the effect and the fruit of our confession and testimony? It will be nothing, nil, uh, null and void. 
And what will be the danger of such inactivity? Well, we will grow, as Hebrews 5.11 says, dull of hearing. And if we never obey according to our confession, we will be at risk of becoming judicially hardened and indeed apostate and to fall away. And we will find in, the, in weeks coming up that this eventuality is to be feared most of all. So let us build on our foundation, saints. Let us live according to the truth that we confess. On, in your time, own time later, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 3, 2, 10, and in that whole section, Paul uses the same analogy of milk to the Corinthian church and also foundations to describe a call to maturity. Maturity in context, teleos, is a word that means a, traje- a trajectory toward perfection. It means that there is an increase in the uh, measurable effect of the gospel in our lives to shape us into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, as it talks about in Ephesians. It is, in fact, the same word that is used in verse 9. The root, anyway, it says, of Christ, he being made perfect, became the source of eternal salvation. Teleos is the root there. And so later when we read, but solid food is for the mature, there is a relationship between what Christ is like in his perfection and our calling toward maturing to that standard. And indeed, our practice and our diligence and our obedience to that end. This is the idea here. There's a picture that you could uh, um, use as an analogy to help describe what maturity looks like in context. It's sort of like a telescope. I read this in one commentary. When fully extended, reaches its full design capacity. Things can come into focus when it's utilized as it's intended. And in a similar way, as we grow in maturity, it brings the Christian life and our testimony into focus. And that which God has planted by way of seed in us, another analogy, biblically speaking, begins to blossom and bloom into a testimony of His work within. So in closing this morning, the relationship between milk and solid food is that we are to build on that foundation and we are to move on to things that the author would have us to consider. What kinds of things? Well, again, in 5, 8 through 9, he is chomping at the bit to explain the high priesthood of Christ according to the order of Melchizedek. He has already laid out for us the glorious truth of Christ's incarnation. Although He was a son, He learned obedience through what He suffered. The incarnate realities, the incarnation and its redemptive truth for us is a result or is part of the maturing process of the believer, things that we love and seek to understand and to explain to others. Also, the insured inheritance, the assured inheritance of Christ. He, being made perfect, became the source of eternal salvation to those who obey Him. And then also the, of course, uh, official capacity of Christ, that is, His office as our high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So in further weeks, as our series unfolds later, we will seek to add to our own understanding growth in these areas, knowing what the incarnation of Christ ought to produce in us by way of understanding and application. Also in an, an assurance and an active sense of our inheritance of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord and a declaration and, and a submission to His office as our High Priest. Finally, this morning... Let us remember, as we previously mentioned, that communion incorporates the fundamental elements of the gospel. But also it reminds us that like a foundation stone, we build on the present reality of Christ's finished work for us by remembrance and proclamation. Even as we trust this means today to grow us in Christ, let us pray for grace to obey enabled by the Spirit's indwelling. And that was paid, and remember that that was paid for on the cross of Jesus Christ. Let us transition in prayer. O Heavenly Father, I pray that as we partake, those who are believers in this room, of the bread which is broken, like your body, 
I pray that as we partake of the cup, which has been poured full, Lord, that we would remember your shed blood. These are elementary foundation stones, the reality of our salvation. We seek to have them firmly fixed in our consciousness to remember, Lord, and to proclaim their power in our life. I pray that the fruit of this message today and the things that we would consider would be maturity, that we would become teachers, that we would become obedient, consistent in our application of the Word of God in the areas of life that you are calling our attention to, that we might repent and grow closer to the picture of Jesus Christ, transformed by, uh, into that same image, even as by the Spirit of God. We thank you for the gracious means that you supply. May, be the, may they be effective by the Spirit's use of them in our lives today, that we may be better equipped to glorify you beyond this service this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.